Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, what is the difference between a hippo and a zippo? What? (laughs) One is really heavy and one is a little lighter. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Greta Johnson that'll break the ice. She's host of the excellent podcast Nerdette. Also, we wrap with Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah. The man behind Broadway's Hamilton joins us later this hour. We'll talk about his work on Disney's Moana. Plus, star Danish chef Klaus Meyer tells me about a miraculous berry. Which also sounds like something from a Disney film. Mm-hmm. And if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in February. So cast your mind back to a time when we were hoping for some hot weather. And when, as at any party, we started with small talk. <laughs> We are speaking with our friend Greta Johnson. She is host of Weekend Edition on WBZ in Chicago. She is also co-host of the wonderful Nerdette podcast. Greta, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? We're going to talk about lovers this week, guys. That's appropriate. Yeah, you know, Valentine's Day coming up. So, yeah, Yeah. this is actually a little bit older of a study. This came out on January 10th. Okay. The question was, is Virginia really for lovers? A play on the state motto. Yeah, We did some sort of scientific examination of that question? Well, they measured a number of different aspects around relationships across the states. So what did they find out? Virginia is not for lovers, guys. (laughs) A number of states did much better. I have to say, coming from Alaska, Alaska ranked kind of in the second tier, which I was pretty proud of. If you're proud of second tier, good for you. But who's number one? (laughs) The best states for lovers, according to the study, are Mississippi, Utah, and Wisconsin, which all like tied for first. But Wisconsin, I think of as a cold place. Maybe that's why they're good lovers. They stay in doors and kiss Exactly. Up. That's what they've always said about Alaska, you know. So forget Paris, go to Milwaukee? Is that what we're <laughs> exactly. saying? Perhaps exactly. so. Yes. I live in New York, which I think ranked pretty low in this study, no? New York, Indiana, South Carolina, Colorado and Ohio are all like in the bottom. Really? Dude. You know what? Maybe I don't think love can be broken down in a lab, Greta, okay? <laughs> Maybe love for me can't be quantified. That's okay? nice to hear you say that because the authors themselves concluded this is a beautiful quote. Are you guys ready? Yes. They mm. say, we do not recommend changing all the affectionate mottos used to describe places or finally moving out of North Dakota. To a certain degree, positive relationships are found everywhere and transcend time and place. So America is for lovers. That's a little hard to fit all that on a (laughs) Valentine's Day card, but thank you for the sentiment. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, and then we give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our thoughtful, yet tipsy, history lesson with booze. Fun. First, the history part. This week back in 1935, Parker Brothers started selling the game Monopoly. And the story of how that happened is as involved as the game itself. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The game about becoming a rich landlord was invented by a woman who hated rich landlords. Her name was Elizabeth McGee, and in 1904, she patented a board game in which players bought and sold property. Her goal? To educate people. She figured it would demonstrate how land monopolies made the owners rich and left the renters broke. She called it the landlord's game. At first, McGee published the game herself, but in 1910, she offered it to Parker Brothers. They declined too educational, they said. And they were kind of right. 
because meanwhile, actual economics professors discovered the game and had students play it in class. Those students taught the game to friends using homemade boards. Soon it spread around the East Coast. Folks added their own rules. They renamed the game's make-believe parcels of land after streets in their hometowns. And in 1933, it reached Philadelphia, where an unemployed salesman named Charles Darrow played it and got a big idea. Darrow manufactured his own version of the game. He sold thousands of them in Philly department stores. People loved it. And when Parker Brothers heard about that, they agreed to market Monopoly. Darrow's new name for the game they'd turned down 25 years earlier. Time, the company thought Darrow was the sole inventor. But when they found McGee's patents, they had to strike a deal. As payment for not suing them, they gave her 500 bucks and published three of her games. None did as well as Monopoly, though. It made Charles Darrow a millionaire. So that's the history. Now for the drink. We're speaking with Dimitri Karnesis. He is a bartender at Doc's Oyster House in Atlantic City. It's located on Atlantic Avenue. And if that sounds familiar, that's because the properties in Charles Darrow's Monopoly were named after Atlantic City streets. Dimitri, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I came up with what I like to call the boardwalk fizz. It's kind of a <laughs> classic play on the French 75 and the famous Ramos gin fizz. All right, so how do you make the boardwalk fizz? So what I did was I muddled a lemon. Okay. And I used one and a half ounces of uh, Ransom Old Tom Gin, which is a classic 1800s kind of recipe for gin, and it's a brown gin to, you know, kind of have that old classic feel to it. That seems crazy to me, though. Isn't the whole point of gin is that it's not brown? It's absolutely fantastic. All right. Well, I still think brown gin's whiskey. Uh, <laughs> what else is in your drink? Um, one egg white, simple syrup to taste. Um, and then what I did was I shook it dry to really get like a good froth and a good head on it. Then I added ice, shook it a bit more, and then uh, I added champagne just for a little bit of that park place kind of decadence, uh-huh. and strained it into a classic champagne coupe glass. And if you don't have that, that's fine. Just use a martini glass. And then a couple of dashes of bitters on top. All right. And then if you happen to have a monocle lying around, go for it. <laughs> so you can garnish it with the monocle. I was thinking you could garnish it with one of those little red houses or green houses, like a hotel. Or you can use the, uh, the classic roadster that comes with the game. Oh, that's right. So, Dimitri, are you from Atlantic City? No, not originally. I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, but uh, I've been here for quite a while, and I've been at Docks for, for quite a while as well. Right, and so do you uh, move properties there? Like, do you own any property in Atlantic City, and do you flip them? And... I do, and then I, I charge astronomical rent if you happen to land on Georgia Avenue. <laughs> there you go, a cocktail courtesy of the venerable Docks Oyster House in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Enrico, I heard in the new Monopoly... You can Airbnb your property, so everyone's hotels decrease in value. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Has the jail been privatized yet? (laughs) That's right. And the little car piece has an Uber sticker in the window. Times change. amazing. New Monopoly. But but people, our recipes remain classic. They're all online at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've made small talk, had a drink. Now it's time for some music. And here to help with that is Kevin Abstract. 
The Texas native won a diehard following online with a series of confessional hip-hop mixtapes. His latest album, American Boyfriend, a suburban love story, moves in a more pop direction and sees him both rapping and singing about never quite fitting in. Here's Kevin with the playlist that'll keep your party moving through time itself. Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Abstract. I love to use my imagination. So for my dinner party soundtrack, I'm going to take you to a few different places, a few different scenes. So let's hop in this time machine and go. The year is 1999. So we get to put our like cell phones away for a moment. <laughs> I'm at my boyfriend's crib. The ceiling looks nice. First song is In Circles by Sunny Day Real Estate. Sunny Day Real Estate's like this band. They were signed to Sub Pop out of Seattle. And I was really inspired by the mood and also the vocal performance. Just certain things he would do with his voice, the way he would bend it at times, I was super into that. So yeah, I'm only 20. I was born in 96. And the few memories I do have from 1999, I don't know what it is about it that like draws me back to it. I think my generation is like extremely obsessed with nostalgia because we have access to it. Everything that was happening in pop culture, as artists, we can draw inspiration from like all these different things that like our parents witnessed and stuff. And I don't know, it's cool. I, I actually like that. So we're going to hop in the time machine. I'm in a cool car. I don't know cars well, so I don't know what car it is. But the top's down, and it's 2016. Someone has to be driving me because I can't drive. Actually, no, I'm driving. I don't have a driver's license, but since this is like a world I created, I'm driving. And the song that we're listening to is um, Treat You Better by Shawn Mendes. I know I can treat you. really attractive and he's this big pop artist from Canada with nice songs and nice hair. My fame is due to the internet 110%. Shawn Mendes also started from the internet. He was like a social media kid at first and he found a way to like become an actual musician. The sound of the song is like extremely massive and you can hear it in like a stadium. This is the type of music I want to make. For this next song, the year is 2002. It's um, You Know What's Up by Donnell Jones. I'm at a basketball game because my brother asked me to go with him. I don't play basketball. I don't watch basketball. I don't like basketball. But when I think about the imagery, I hear the song being played. So yeah, if you hate where you are at the moment and you don't like the party you're at, 
you can play this song and your life will feel much better. Can we ascend to higher heights and when a path gets rough? We can give into brighter nights, breathe with peace. Expound by leaps and soul to reap by souls to keep the passions deep. The song is R&B, soul, has like a late 90s feel, and it just makes me happy to be black. The message in the song has nothing to do with race. I think it's just about him existing and making something that's great that makes me happy to be a black person. All right, this is the final song. We're fully in the present. It's 2017. I'm at this surprise party that my friends threw for me, and I want to play this song that I made called Runner. Yeah, Runner's about me growing up in Texas and just dealing with relationships and stuff and not really knowing how to express myself to my family. I always felt like there was a wall or something that was like holding me back from being who I really was, from finding freedom. Dinner Party soundtrack from Kevin Abstract. He'll be playing late summer music festivals next month. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And then another musical maestro, Lin-Manuel Miranda, stops by to talk about his Oscar-nominated anthem and the boogeyman of his youth. I think the uber-villain of my childhood growing up was David Bowie. He has his reasons when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. Coming up, Brendan has beer for breakfast for journalism. Mm-hmm. And the great-great-grandkid of Emily Post tells America to take off your baseball caps already. But first, Jesus. let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And this week, it's playwright, actor, rapper, etc., Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. In 2008, his musical In the Heights won the Tony for Best Musical. And his follow-up, Hamilton, about our nation's first Treasury Secretary, broke box office records and earned him a bunch of Tonys, a Grammy, and the Pulitzer Prize for drama. It also earned the scorn of President Trump after the cast directly addressed Vice President Pence at the end of a performance he attended. They respectfully asked the administration to defend civil rights. Speaking of drama. It was dramatic. You can hear Lynn's latest work in the Disney animated film Moana about a Polynesian princess who longs to leave her island. Lynn co-wrote several songs for it, one of which, How Far I'll Go, was nominated for an Oscar. When we met in February, I noted that tune is in a long tradition of what Disney fanatics call I Want Songs, in which the hero sings about their deepest wish. The bar for an audience for those particular songs is so high. MTV actually ranked all the I Want Songs when Moana came out. You ended up, I think, a respectable number five or something. I'm amazed I appeared, honestly. No, I I mean, it's, uh, you have to force it out of your mind when you sit at the piano. You know, remember, I'm in the wake of Let It Go. A minor hit. So it was like, don't write Let It Go. Don't write Let It Go. <laughs> that was what I was thinking when I sat down at the piano. But how hard is it not to write? I mean, in, in a sense, all of them have a similar feel. They are these grand statements of belief. So how do you avoid, you know, falling into a, I'm going to just write another Let It Go? The only solution to not thinking about that bar and being in that club is to just double down on what does your character want, what makes her unique, and what makes her very specific, you know. Part of Your World is my favorite I Want song. From The Little Mermaid, This is from, right? this is from The Little Mermaid. 
and it's because it's so specific. You know, that, that brilliant conceit of her not having the names for the human things. What's that word again? Feet. That's, that's sort of the brilliant thing. I, I actually wrote a first draft of the song that eventually became How Far I'll Go called More. And it was a good song. It was perfectly fine. And she was sort of like, all right, I'm, I'm hip to this island. I want to see what else is out there. And then I think the, the key insight that really made the song what it is is it's not about not liking where she is and wanting to go somewhere else. She loves where she is. She loves her parents. She loves her island. She loves her community. And there's this voice anyway. And so I felt like that was much more complicated and also much truer to my experience growing up, which was I had loving, supportive parents. I lived in a neighborhood I really liked. I went to a school. I had friends. And yet there was this impossible distance between me wanting to make movies and write shows. I didn't know anyone in show business. I didn't know anyone in that world. Your mom is a psychologist. My is mom's that- a psychologist. My dad was in politics. And, you know, it's no accident that I, I, I've wrote what became the final draft of How Far I'll Go at my parents' house. I kind of went method for it. I like locked myself up in my bedroom and I was like, all right, you're 16 years old and the distance between you and what you want is impossible. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? Actually, this leads nicely to my next question, which is, when you were growing up, what was your I Want song? Something in pop music, maybe that crystallized how you wanted to be? Or- well, you know, it's interesting. To me, most of the, my favorite rap songs are I Want songs in disguise. They are this, I, this is my world and I'm going to get out of here. Like? Um, like, Lose Yourself. Like... Can't knock the hustle, like juicy, you know. Like most of them, as, as I'm like thinking. Most about. of them are like, if they're really good, they're I want songs. It's like an entire genre of I want songs. <laughs> it kind of is, um, but I'm trying to think in terms of my my adolescence in particular. I was entering sort of prepubescence and pubescence at that golden era of Disney animated musicals. Like I was 10 when Little Mermaid came out and rocked my world. And then by the same director as Moana, by the way. Yes. And then it was Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King. It was like four in a row of just like brilliant and, and in totally different ways. I was exactly the right age for those. Let's talk about another influence on the music for this movie. The song Shiny yes. is based on David Bowie, yeah. which I understand you listened to a lot of while writing that song, a lot of David Bowie songs. What, when you were listening to all that stuff, what were his, did you figure out what makes a David Bowie song a David Bowie song? Well, one, the idea came to me because I, along with the rest of the world, was mourning Bowie in 2016. And so I was listening to a lot of Bowie anyway. So it had kind of seeped into uh, my bloodstream a bit. But for me, it would, it's all about, and also I think the other the other reason for it, and I haven't said this to anyone before, I think the uber villain of my childhood growing up was David Bowie, the Goblin King, from the movie Labyrinth, where he's so good and he's so charming. He kind of capsizes the movie. I grew up with an older sister, and my sister used to tell me, I would give you away to the Goblin King, and I wouldn't come looking for you. I would just go live with David Bowie and be happy. Oh, no. <laughs> so I think his voice as a kind of uh, villain was already 
floating in my subconscious. Yeah, he's a, the character that sings the Bowie song is a bad guy, the giant crab who likes shiny things. Yeah, yeah. So, but to me, the, the trick to the Bowie tribute is really sinking into the vowels. It's the the Maui man, you know, die, die, die. You know, it's it's about really just hitting the vowels so hard. My shelf's too tough, Maui man. You can try, 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 but you can't expect a demigod to beat and take apart. Pick it up. You will die, die, die. Now it's time for me to take a part in your aching heart. Far from the ones who abandoned you, chasing the love and, and also the way he says, love. <laughs> you know, I've been listening to a lot of Under Pressure. Love, love, love. So when he's, you know, love, I just had to put that in the way he says love. Um, I also wanted to ask you about songs that you don't write, at least in a traditional way, you improvise them. Um, you are known as a great freestyle rapper, basically improvising rap songs as you go, which seems to me to be just an almost superhuman skill. Is that something you're just born with? Is it something no. you can practice? What do you, what do you do to practice that? No. In fact, I remember being in high school and having friends who were good at it in high school and I was never the kid. I was always going like... I don't have anything. Pass it. Pause it. Um, and then I think I got courage in college. Like I just, I remember starting to freestyle as a goof with my friends and then realizing like the more we did it, I was getting better and my friends weren't getting any better. <laughs> but why, what were you doing? Do you think that made it, I mean, were you sitting around in your car just freestyling? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very distinctly remember this one road trip. Um, my college roommates and I took, we, we drove to Vegas and back in a week, which I don't recommend to anyone. Uh, we had to get back cause we were all in a play. <laughs> from New York, I'm assuming. This is from Connecticut, yeah, from Connecticut to Vegas and back. And I caught the Kansas 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. driving shift. We could only make it if we drove nonstop. And no disrespect to Kansas, but at night, it's flat and there's nothing to keep you awake. It's like gas station, gas station, farm, gas station, gas station, farm. And everyone else in the car was asleep. And I remember from 1 to 5 a.m. just popping in a tape of instrumental beats, drinking four Red Bulls, and rapping to myself. And when the sun came up that morning, I was pretty good at freestyling because I had gone through some wormhole. What were the other guys doing while you they were, were freestyling? Knocked out asleep. They missed it. They missed the genesis of a great, <laughs> a great freestyle. They did. It happened while they were sleeping. I, I don't know if it was any good, but I know I went from. I, I pushed through some ten thousand hours. <laughs> so that's the secret: is just do it and do it and do it until you're. Yeah, good. the secret is to do it and do it, do it, and also do it with people who challenge you. I mean, the the great thing I have is this improv group called Freestyle of Supreme, um, and we've done this countless times in front of so many audiences that like you get a certain fearlessness because you've done it. And what's funny is your body doesn't know. I still get the same stomach ache and the same like, hey, we haven't rehearsed. What what are we going out there and doing? Like you can't tell your reptilian brain that, that this is that, safe. That this is going to be okay. But, you know, thankfully uh, I've got I've got friends who are really good at it. And so we, we, we keep each other's knives sharp. Um, I hope you don't mind. I have to ask you a few questions about Hamilton. If that's yeah, sure. all right. By its nature, a limited number of people on earth can actually see the show. It's a live performance. Right. So most people that are really into it are into it through the music. What is it that you're sad people are missing because <laughs> when they are unable to see the show? Um, well, here's the thing. That's how I fell in love with 
most Broadway shows. I've still never seen Man of La Mancha on stage. Really? I've still never seen Camelot on stage. Um, but I fell in love with those. I wore those cast albums out when I was a kid. And so I have a version in my head um, that I'm almost scared to break by seeing the show's stage. You're never going to see a Man of La Mancha now. It was on Broadway a few years ago and I, I didn't go. I was just like, no, I've got, I've got the version in my head that I'd like to see. You know, there, there is a magic to that. Um, at the same time, you know, the work of my collaborators is so incredible. I think um, when you have fans who have listened to the album a million times, there's still so much more when they actually go see it. It's not like we've, even though the show is sung through, you know what happens if you've listened to these two discs. There is so much uh, in store for you when you see it live. Um, I will admit I have not seen the show live. I have tickets to see it here in LA. Is there something in the staging or something, some little detail that most people don't catch that you really love that I should be looking out for? I'll tell you what I, I see something new every time I see it is in the num- the song called Hurricane. There's a tableau that happens as he's singing. And this isn't a spoiler. Uh, he said to himself, hoping it's not a spoiler, but there's this incredible tableau that happens. The, the entire company shows up and this freeze happens. And every moment in the freeze is a different moment of Hamilton's life. So in one corner, you see a red coat. In one corner, you see, you know, King George. Every time I see it, I see something I hadn't seen before. And that's like, I get to see it a lot. <laughs> like, especially now that I'm not in the show. Um, I couldn't see anything when I was actually Hamilton in the eye of the hurricane. But I catch something happening in the sidelines or between two of the ensemble members that I've never seen before every time I see it. Um, We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first one, if we were to meet you at a party, what question should we not ask you? Uh, For a selfie. (laughs) I'm probably going to ask you for a selfie after this interview. I I don't mind. I will always oblige. But yeah, I mean, all right. We we could be talking about something. That surprises me, actually, because I would think that it would be asking about the uh, the Mike Pence situation. Oh, yeah. Well, that that too, because it's also that that was over from Friday to Sunday, and I still get asked about it all the time, which was like, we said our piece. He was not offended and was like on the news that Sunday being like, it was a great show. I want everyone to go see it. And well, yet, it's not no- so much his offense. I think right. it, people are somewhat interested in our president's offense that he took at that. Yeah. And, and I think it was a mischaracterization of what happened. Um, and that's what sort of caused a lot of the noise around the thing. But I was very grateful. Mike Pence sort of said like, no, I wasn't offended. That's, that's part of the gig. And, you know, I really like the show. And actually, as, a, as we were just talking, it occurs to me that this show in particular, it was actually debuted at the Obama White House. Now it's become sort of... <laughs> maybe seen in a different light by a new group of politicians. It's always been kind of steeped in politics. Was that by design? Design. My, my, my hope was that we'd get off the arts page. You know, that's my hope was that we'd mount a production. Everything else has been not by design. But it is interesting. You know, one of the themes of the show is you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Hamilton was succeeded by... It, it, all of his enemies becoming president. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it was Jefferson, Monroe, John Quincy Adams. It was Madison, uh, not in that order. But those are all guys who like did not like Hamilton. And so, you know, we were beloved by the last president. We are not so beloved by this president and life goes on. <laughs> that is under no one's control. 
Monsieur Hamilton. Monsieur Lafayette. In command where you belong. Are you saying no sweat? We're finally on the field. We've had quite a run. Immigrants, we get the job done. Lin-Manuel Miranda, he co-wrote the music for Disney's Moana. It's on streaming services right now. And folks, there's more where that came from. We've got a longer cut of the interview on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And if you subscribe to our podcast, you'll find extended cuts of interviews from the likes of Jordan Peele and Glow star Allison Brie. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. All right, Enrico, we've talked before about the rebirth of Scandinavian cuisine. Of course. The Danish restaurant Noma is one of the best in the world. That's right. And and I did that story from Copenhagen on how their open-faced sandwiches are a thing that's become trendy. Of course. But I've never heard about a common Danish breakfast food that I've been calling beer porridge. Oh, that's when you accidentally spill beer into the pretzel bowl. No, the, you... I think that's football watching porridge. The, oh, getting confused. that yeah. is correct. No, this is a dish that Klaus Meyer's been selling. He's one of the best restaurateurs in Denmark, and he moved to New York to launch the Great Northern Food Hall, a food court he designed in Grand Central Station. So I met up with him, ordered a bowl, and asked him to tell me about it. This is a kind of a Danish, very classical rye porridge. We call it Ølebrød. Ølebrød. Ølebrød, yeah. Ølebrød, yeah. You're getting very close. So it's something that uh, our grand-grandparents would make with the leftover rye bread. But this looks a little more exotic than just just rye bread. So what else is going on in here? This is a, a modern take on it. Uh, so normally it would only be old rye bread, rehydrated in beer and water. And then you would add sugar, a little bit of sugar or honey. And then you would kind of uh, cook it until it becomes a porridge. I have to say that the, 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 the rye porridge in its own right is a little bit kind of mellow, dark, slightly bitter. Of course sweet too. But it becomes so much better if you add, in this case, whipped cream, egg yolk beaten with sugar, some sort of vanilla custard. And then we have just, you know, added small chunks of chocolate, caramelized rye to make, to to produce a more complex, badass, total flavor. Is that a Danish word too, badass? No, that's not very Danish. Why is rye so, why why is that so associated with Scandinavian cooking? There was this idea that we couldn't grow wheat. And also it is difficult to grow wheat because wheat, in order to reach uh, complete maturity, demands a warmer climate with more sunshine. You can actually grow certain varieties of wheat, but uh, it is true that rye, as well as barley and oat, grow better in a cold climate, in a cold, rough climate than the one that we have in Scandinavia, than in a warmer climate, which is why you find the bigger part of the rye production in the world in places like Russia, Finland, Sweden, and, and Denmark. So why were they rehydrating it with beer? This sounds like a, what you do in a dorm room, not what, what you do in a kitchen. <laughs> I think because they didn't want to lose the beer. Beer would eventually sometimes go sour. And also remember that back in the time, you couldn't drink the water. So one way in, in which to make the water was to boil it and get it through the fermentation process involved in, in, in beer production. So we were drinking beer instead of water, not only to get drunk, but also because it was more uh, kind of healthy or sane. All right. So um, maybe, maybe I can taste this and I can ask you a few more questions. 
And we have a picture of this, which people will be able to see on our website. There, there's porridge, and then on top of it is this beautiful, it's like autumnal colors of orange and brown and rust, and then there's white foam. What is the foam? Kind of a but- buttermilk uh, vanilla foam. Sounds amazing. And then there's like, it's almost candied green on top of it. Tarragon sugar. Tarragon sugar. Excellent. I'm going to try it. Oh my goodness. That is very complex. The mm. chef, you give it a thumbs up? Yeah, I do. It's almost like there's like, um, I taste licorice, I taste the rye, I taste the chocolate. What is, what is jumping out at you? Mm, the orange flavors of, um, all this kind of orangey, yeah. exotic flavors of the, the sea buckthorn. Sea buckthorn, what is sea buckthorn? Sea buckthorn is probably the most healthy berry in the world. These small, uh, beautiful orange wonders that weigh something like half a gram each contain as much vitamin C as a whole orange, uh, each one. And they grow uh, wildly close to the seashores of uh, particularly the whole Scandinavian region. Uh, They're sitting on bushes with a lot of thorns. Uh, There were certain ways of getting them off the bush. And, and, and once you have them, they, they, don't, they don't really taste very well, eaten raw. They're extremely acid and, and tart. But once you cook them or marinate them with sugar, a miracle happens. And a flavor comes out that is no longer sour socks, but closer to mango, kumquat, uh, yutsu, mandarin. It's pretty amazing. Well, so you've moved to New York recently. Have you availed yourself of any local New York breakfast foods? What have you been eating here? To be honest, I most often don't like very much the idea of eating breakfast out in New York. I think it's strange to have these enormous portions of something. You know, 10 pancakes or a French toast that will kill you. A challah French toast? You wake up in the night, yeah, challah French toast. You wake up in the night sweating because you think of that French toast that was about to kill you. You can't eat for the next 36 hours. I, I prefer meals that are a little bit better calibrated or... No chicken and waffles for you? That's, that's for me, that's, I don't want to wake up that, that, that way. But, 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 I mean, I love eating lunch and dinner. So, Brendan, it seems like you and Klaus got along really well, which I understand, because he shares your hatred of brunch, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> that's right. Afterwards, we burned a plate of Eggs Benedict and Effigy. Oh, wow. Yeah. That'll change hearts and minds. They were alarmed in Grand Central. Folks, coming up, expert etiquette advice for navigating the trickiest holiday of the year, because it's not Valentine's Day unless you're in danger of ruining your relationship. When the Dinner Party download continues. This is an encore broadcast of a show that first aired in February. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, acclaimed author Otessa Moshveg provides us with a list that will change the way you think about The Wizard of Oz. But first, mm. it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and usually we pose them to a randomly chosen celebrity. But here to answer them this week is an actual expert in the field, our friend Daniel Post-Senning. Hooray. And he's flying solo this week. Daniel's the great-great-grandson of etiquette doyen Emily Post and helps run the Emily Post Institute, 
Along with his cousin Lizzie, he co-hosts the wonderful podcast Awesome Etiquette. And Dan, welcome. Gentlemen, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. It's been a long time, I feel like. Are you lonely without Lizzie? Usually we we have you here with your cousin. I miss her. I I do. I miss (laughs) her a little bit today. But the good news is if you want to, you can talk about her behind her back. She's not going to hear Yeah, that's totally polite, right? Oh, definitely. We'll get to that later. But hey, (laughs) we, uh, we had a question for you about Valentine's Day. It's coming up, which can be a total etiquette quagmire, particularly in 2017. This is kind of a very traditional holiday. It's, I think a lot of the rules for it are based on traditional kind of gender roles and things like that. In 2017, how do we deal with Valentine's Day? Well, one of the great things about etiquette is that it's it's gender neutral in a lot of ways. It's all about respect, consideration, and honesty. And even if you look at chivalry as a historical concept, a historic concept, it was all rooted in, in respect at the time. It was a way to show respect to women. And today we, we say that, that that respect flows in all directions. And you're right. And, and etiquette does change and evolve. There is a, an emerging expectation, particularly early in a relationship, that you oftentimes share costs. You want to stay on equitable footing. That's right. So no one feels in debt to anyone else. Wait, what? Um, at, I've been doing it all wrong. You, you always pay? I thought you were supposed to pay at the beginning of a relationship, and then afterwards you're like, you know what? I'm broke, so we need to split. Well, <laughs> you sort of curry favor at the beginning. <laughs> exactly. There, there are certain traditionalists who really enjoy that idea, and, and, and there is still room to honor that. But yeah, I'll tell you the, the etiquette tip I give people is if they want to split the bill, if they want to keep it equal, talk about it early. Say, you know, I'd love to yeah. go out with you, but just don't expect to pay at the end because I like to I like to cover my share. But even then, a Valentine's Day date that ends with you splitting the check, that I doesn't know. feel well, right to me. Well, that's where it seems to me the Venn diagram of romance and etiquette, the overlapping portion is probably not huge. <laughs> right? <laughs> Although, at the same time, there are deal breakers. You try try getting through that romantic meal, chewing with your mouth open, talking with your mouth full, and, and, and watch All how right. it turns out. That's Good right. Point. So whatever you do, whoever makes the reservation or pays for it, just please chew with your mouth closed. Smile. Look them in the eye. Listen to what they have to say. You're going to be in great shape. Yes. All right. We've got some questions now from actual real people. You ready for these? I think so. Let's okay. Go. So this next question comes from MJ in San Diego, California. MJ writes, Mother taught me that a gentleman or even a regular dude removes his hat indoors. Uh-huh. I see so many guys wearing ball caps to house parties, proper sit-down restaurants, and even church. It drives me nuts. Am I hopelessly old school, or is it okay to ask a guy to take off the damn ball cap? Wow. That's an old one. Oh, MJ, thank you so much for this particular question. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the, the more formal the situation, the more you want to honor that traditional etiquette. Definitely in a house of worship, take off that cap. If other people are eating, if it's a restaurant, take off that cap. Um, what was the third situation? At a house party, though. House party. Uh, I mean, like, I, when I'm thinking of a house party, I'm thinking about <laughs> bumping music and people dancing in the living room. Yeah, no, in, in, in an informal situation, absolutely leave it on. But I, I, I really like this courtesy. I think it does show respect. I also, we talked yeah. about gender-neutral courtesy. I say, ladies, if you're wearing that baseball cap, uh, the same courtesy applies here for you uh, as well. It used to be that women could leave their hats on, but those hats were pinned into elaborate hairdos and were part of a <laughs> Sunday ensemble that that was thought out and considered and that's not the case so often anymore but then why didn't that ever apply to dudes very often back in the day a hat was an essential part of the outfit but it was a much easier hat to take off uh, yeah okay. and if you really want to get into it the, the, the idea that you took your hat off came from taking your visor up so you looked someone in the eye so they knew who you were a lot of our manners are rooted in the middle ages uh. so you you were showing someone i come in peace i come in friendship i'm not here to attack you all right i so know take- i can I'm, I'm picturing a, a chainmail baseball cap now yeah. <laughs> backwards. Now that would be cool. All right, here's something from Leah. 
via our website. And Leah writes, I am part of a carpool. Folks take turns sharing the burden of driving, but one of the carpoolers drives in a way that's frustrating, hitting the gas, then slamming on the brakes in traffic. It is harrowing, and it makes me carsick. Can I say something? How should I address this? Oh, what a nightmare. Ugh. Backseat driver, side seat driver, it's really hard to comment on how someone else drives. Safety trumps etiquette, um, and if you're really uh, feeling unsafe or unwell, I say say something, but you might want to just think about how you would feel if you were sitting in the driver's seat and someone else were commenting on how you were driving before you take the jump. Why is it? It's true, but why is it that backseat driving is so annoying? On the face of it, it's just someone saying, hey, could you like take it easy? My idea here is that driving is, it's almost unconscious. It's such a practiced act that it's happening. You're often in a flow state when you're doing it and it it feels really personal. It feels like someone's commenting on part of who you are when they comment on how you drive. Interesting. Well, I also think driving is inherently horrible and so you're already in a bad mood if you're driving <laughs> yeah, and right. you don't need someone else critiquing your this horrible thing you're doing as an LA resident but, I can tell you that's true so Leah <laughs> uh, maybe it's time to get a bus pass thanks Leah our next question comes from Nate in Brooklyn New York Nate writes I'm currently unemployed when I get together with friends and family they inevitably ask how the job search is going and try to give me advice I've already heard if I say that I'd rather not talk about it right now they still press the issue mm. Any polite ways to divert the conversation? I, I say have a couple of, of deflecting conversation topics in your pocket and ready to go. Nope, the search continues. Okay. And how about that most incredible Super Bowl of all time? Could you believe that? <laughs> well, said the guy from New England. Yeah. Just had to get it in there. I also think this, don't you think this is a, a good situation for lying? Shouldn't you, couldn't you just say, oh, actually, oh. I, applied for, I applied for a handful of jobs this week. See, this is why you bring in the etiquette experts, because one of the tenets <laughs> of good etiquette is honesty. And I know you know this because you're so good at heart. And yeah. um, that little white lie mm. is so tempting. And, you know, see, it's you gonna... just lied right there, Dan. Yeah. You just said I was good at heart. That was a yeah, lie. That's questionable. The benevolent truth. <laughs> that's fake news. But Nate, sincerely, good luck with the job search. All right. Daniel Post sending, if that's your real name. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. You're most welcome. Take care. Daniel Post-Senning, he is co-author of Emily Post-Etiquette, the 18th edition, and co-host of the podcast Awesome Etiquette. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have a pressing problem with politesse, first of all, pull the car over if you're driving your colleagues to work. Please. And then email us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest today is Otessa Moshfeg. She's a frequent contributor to the literary magazine The Paris Review, and her novel Eileen was shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize. Her latest work is a collection of stories about characters on the fringes of society. It's called Homesick for Another World. Here she is with a list of characters who are homesick for another time. I'm Otessa Moshfeg, and... A lot of my characters don't feel at home in the reality that they were born into. They're always weirdos, and they always end up finding themselves in weird worlds. But I'm attracted to characters that actually do travel to other dimensions. And I'm a huge fan of movies. So here are three characters from movies that take us through time and space to a different world. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads... Where we're going, we don't need roads. Number one, Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Back to the Future 1 and 2. Forget 3. I 
Okay, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. First of all, he's adorable. And he seems sort of mature beyond his years. He comes from a troubled home, and yet he's totally cool and dorky at the same time. And his best friend is this totally weird scientist. And you, you wonder, like, what, why are they friends? What do they have in common? And I think they're both interested in interdimensional travel. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? I mean, it's a really huge story. And it's dealing with these really abstract concepts. Space, time, existence. I think you needed a really lighthearted character to guide you through all these heavy movements. And Marty McFly carries it all with this sort of levity and humor. And somehow he's a hero, even though he's just this little twerp. You're my mom. You're my mom. My name is Lorraine. Yeah. But you're... Uh, you're so... Uh, you're so... Thin. I mean, I think levity is really essential. I mean, every book that I love is a book that can make me laugh. And what I've tried to do in my collection is to poke fun at my own self-seriousness and the drama of being a, an emotional being. Another character I was thinking of, the second one, would be Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And a lot like Marty McFly, she's leading us on an adventure into another totally foreign landscape. But a landscape that seems to be maybe a projection of her own subconscious. We must be over the rainbow. There's something heartbreaking about Dorothy. Like we, we know that she's lost and that these silly characters that she's meeting on the road are just aspects of maybe herself or what she needs, you know, she needs intelligence and courage and she needs not to be alone. You just had a bad dream. But it wasn't a dream. It was a place. And you, and you, and you, and you were there. <laughs> the characters are sort of distorted dream versions of her real life cast of characters. And they sent me home. <laughs> Doesn't anybody believe me? And I can relate. I used to write with a mirror set up behind my computer, and I would look up from the mirror and I'd be making a face that I didn't recognize, like the face of this character in whatever scene I'd just been writing. And number three is a little bit weird, <laughs> and it's the knight guarding the Holy Grail at the very end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You strangely dressed. A knight? A knight? What do you mean? He's been in the temple for centuries. Meanwhile, he's just been sitting there in his chainmail armor, completely alone with all these cups. Which one is it? You must choose. But choose wisely. One of these cups is the actual Holy Grail that Jesus had drank out of. And if you drink out of it, you'll be granted everlasting life. And if you drink from the wrong cup, if you choose any other cup, you will die a terrible death instantly. He chose poorly. This knight, 
He is almost like a guru from outer space. He just completely disrupts the fabric of the reality of the story in a way that like, I've, I think was so daring and bizarre. You have chosen wisely. The characters I like are characters that don't really fit in the world that we meet them at. When I am writing characters and stories, I am kind of mining my subconscious for the lurking weirdos that are parts of me that I don't otherwise know how to bring into the light. Uh, Tessa Moshveg, her collection of short stories is called Homesick for Another World. It's out now, or if you're Marty McFly, it will be out 62 years from now. Something to look forward to. And ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Till next week, keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. This show wouldn't happen without our senior producer, Jackson Musker, associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and our engineer this week, Daniel Ramirez. And now, before we leave you, here's One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Tanarawin, our group of blues-playing Toreg musicians from the Sahara Desert region of northern Mali, The band had to flee their homeland due to political unrest. Now they record their albums in California. The latest one is called L1. Here's a track from it called Asawat. Bon appétit. Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. You have chosen wisely.